Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey everyone, Marisa Lagos here. I'm in a hotel room down in Anaheim where I am covering the California GOP convention. But obviously, we on the politics desk, along with all of you, woke up to the sad news this morning on Friday that Senator Dianne Feinstein had passed away at the age of 90. Uh, It was not actually the news we planned on covering today. Um, You know, it's been a long day. Scott, Guy, and I have been working hard to remember the senator and talk about her legacy and what she's done for California. And we realized that it would be a good idea to re-release our 2018 interview with her. Uh, She came into KQED in October of 2018 And we did, you know, our typical political breakdown interview. We asked her about her entire life story, starting with her very difficult childhood with a mother who struggled with mental illness, up through her time as mayor, finding Harvey Milk's body after the horrific assassination of Supervisor Milk and Mayor George Moscone, and through her time in the Senate. And honestly, we did not know how she would deal with some of these more personal questions. Um, She's a pretty private person and was not always excited to kind of go deep on the personal stuff. Um, And we were really impressed with the way she opened up. So we wanted to send this out to our podcast feed, uh, share it with you all as we remember this lioness of the U.S. Senate and everything she's done. Let's get right to it. Senator Feinstein, welcome to The Breakdown. Thanks, Marissa. Um, We really appreciate you being here. And we want to talk about a really a remarkable life you've had. But one thing that struck me as, as we went through and we're reading about your history is really what a trailblazer you've been as a woman. I mean, you went to Stanford in the 1950s. Um, you were elected to the Board of Supervisors in, I believe, 1969. I guess I'm just curious if you could kind of put in context how that life that you've lived has shaped your worldview and, and how you carry that with you as times have changed dramatically for women in the U.S. in some ways, and in other ways, they haven't. Well, there's an interesting thing, because I think it goes back to my childhood. Um, I was the oldest of three daughters, and so a number of responsibilities fell on me. And I got used to responsibility very early, before school, after school, and um, I grew to enjoy it, um, strangely enough. And then at Stanford, I took a course in American political thought. And the final was all composition. And I wrote my heart out, and I got an A+. And I thought, that said something to me about my ability to cope in this arena. 
And then I did a year's graduate work with the Coral Foundation, which is indigenous to this area, and did a preliminary master plan for the city of South San Francisco, was assigned to two labor unions, the DA's office. We did a big report on the post-conviction phases in the administration of criminal justice. And then Pat Brown appointed me to the California Women's Board of Terms and Parole. So... I got a good dose of criminal justice and uh, what was happening. Uh, I then went and uh, ran for the board. Well, let's let me stop you there because yeah. we want to get to that. <laughs> we we want to get to that, but I want to ask you about the things you just talked about. So, as Marisa said, you were there were probably not a lot of women uh, at Stanford at that time. I know Sandra Day O'Connor was there yes. r- roughly around that same yes. time and talked about how hard it was for her after graduating law school to even get an interview, much less a job. Yeah. But how did those years uh, affect your thinking? I mean, you know, being a woman, being subjected to, you know, the barriers that uh, men didn't face in those times. Well, that's right. And I ran into pretty much the same thing that uh, the justice ran into. Uh, As a matter of fact, I was just thinking about that today. And um, I was very often not hired and not very often, maybe two or three times. That was very often. And you think that was because you were a woman? Yeah, I do think it because I think my grades were, were certainly good enough. And in any event, um, at the time, the League of Women Voters was very active. I was somewhat active in it. Um, I began to get active in community groups, and I found that this is really what I wanted to do. And so I ran for the Board of Supervisors and was very lucky. This is a cute story. I uh, topped the ticket, and as you know, when you top the ticket, you're president of the board. You get the most votes, You and this was citywide. This was citywide, citywide elections. Yeah, yeah. You get the most votes. And John J. Barber Gelada, who came in number two. Who was very conservative. Yes, who wrote a chronicle um, op-ed piece uh, that I sh- am untrained uh, I should turn it down and accept the second <laughs> wow. uh, position. I thought that doesn't did make he, very good sense to me. Did he tell it, that to you or just put it in the chronicle? It, it was in writing. So, I, mean, I thought it was a chronicle. I, I hope I'm right. But That's he didn't a have... long time ago. He didn't come talk to you about it? No. Oh, no. interesting. And in any event, uh, I got seasoned pretty quickly and went on and um, served nine years on the board, was three times the president of the board. Uh, happened to have been there on that terrible day, November 22nd, which mm. is upcoming, when Harvey Milk walked by the office and I said, Harvey, no, excuse me, when Dan White walked by the office, it was my first day back. My husband and I had gone on a vacation and just came back and um, yeah. Harvey didn't, Dan didn't stop, and I heard the door slam, and I heard the shots, and everybody was gone, and um, I remember this so well, and it's still traumatic, uh, because I tried to get uh, a pulse in his wrist and put my finger in a bullet hole, and um, it was clear he was dead, Mm. and that changed the world. And I want to just ask you one thing, because you, there were reports that that day, uh, before that happened, you decided to give up politics. That's true. Yeah. So what, what made, what brought you to that decision, which obviously events overtook that decision, but what, what was it that made you think, you know, I'm not going to What I decided was I was not going to run for another term of the board. 
um, that that was that. Because um, well, um, my husband had died. Um, I remarried. Um, I have a daughter, and I just thought enough was enough. It's still very traumatic for me to look back on candidly, because those assassinations were everything that was not supposed to happen, and I would give up anything if they had not happened. And um, once they happen, they impact everything, everything you do, everything the city is, and the worry over the city um, because of the hatred. Um, You had the first openly gay public official killed by a former police officer and firefighter who was sort of America's all-American boy. Yeah, very handsome. And, very, yeah, yeah. and uh, a beautiful wife and small child and really hard, really hard. And anyway, I don't often talk of this, so I wonder you have to put up with it. If, no, we're glad. I mean, I think this is, it is a pivotal moment for you and, and your life and also obviously San Francisco and, and talking to people who are around you, I mean, somebody pointed out to me that, you know, that day you saw political differences literally end in gunfire. Um, and I'm curious if that, if you think that has a it sort of changed or did change your approach to governing and to politics, because I think one thing we've heard in the campaign you're in now is that you can be too collegial. Um, I mean, is that obviously there's gun control and other sort of policy things that maybe came out of that and some of the other events of that era. But did that affect the way you kind of want to approach people uh, regardless of their positions? No. Um, I mean, I am the way I am and I welcome collegiality and I welcome getting along and I share thoughts and ideas Um, and I don't like uh, the histrionics that have got into this because, uh, and then, well, the, as you know, I became mayor and was mayor for, uh, I guess, three terms. Yeah. And the first two years were very hard, and then it kind of settled down. And um, we were able to put the bricks of the city back together again. Mm-hmm. And was, was that, there- was, that was a wonderful experience. Was there a way in which you felt like suddenly you were mayor? Uh, there had been a progressive mayor, the sort of the left, the progressives in San Francisco were so excited about Harvey Milk and George Moscone. Did, did, like, did that put you in an awkward position at all? Yes, and I'll tell you why. I had run for mayor, mm-hmm. and I was defeated. And I was convinced I would never be mayor. And so... And you did you lose to George Moscone? Uh, yes. Yeah. Did, and, and you said, we talked earlier that you said after that point that you were going to leave politics. I mean, did your losses impact that decision? Yeah, I think they did. Um, I think they did. Um, you know, when you're young, things impact you differently than when you get a lot of seasoning, so to speak. Yeah. And uh, it really did impact me. Um, as a matter of fact, the first thing that uh, my husband and I, and the last time I ran for mayor, my husband supported George. And What? Yes. Diplom. Over you? And he, what, we were oh, you married. weren't married. <laughs> no, we were married. That would have been a short He was a big Moscone <laughs> supporter, and he headed his fiscal advisory committee. And um, subsequently, we met after my husband died. And... Um, uh, 
Yeah. The rest is history. Oh, the rest is um, history. We're going to take a short break. We are with uh, U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein. When we get back, we will continue this conversation. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer, along with Marisa Lagos. We're here with U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein. Before the break, we were talking about uh, the terrible years when uh, there were two assassinations in San Francisco. And there's that iconic film video of you announcing to the world at City Hall. It's, I think, seared in anybody's mind who has seen it before. And I'm just wondering, when you think back to that moment, what were you, what was going through your mind? What happens to me is everything else blocks out except what I am doing and what I need to do. So it's it's a phenomenon. I can't explain what happens. But I can just perform. I can just keep going. And it's not by will. I know that. But it happens that way. And I think over time it's served me in good stead because when I've had setbacks and these assassinations, I mean, I wouldn't trade anything for them. They're terrible. You know, it's just, it's awful what it does to family and spouses and the city and uh, the trauma and the gay community. And this was the first openly gay public official in America and I remember leaning over his body and getting a pulse, and everybody else was gone. And I thought, oh, my God, how can this be? You know, this is San Francisco. How can this be? But it was. You can hear on that video, too, like the gasps of the reporters and, and just, you know, the shock of the city. I'm just curious. I mean, we are in such stratified times nationally. And I mentioned, you know, that was a very... That event was clearly the center of a lot of, you know, 
kind of crazy things happening in San Francisco. There was Jonestown. Um, there were other events. Are, are, do you worry now about sort of where we're at nationally? Well, I do worry where we're at nationally because there's uh, what I've learned over time is people are fragile. They may not appear to be so, but certain things inside of them break, and they do things that they never thought they would ever do. And one of the things that you so need is a president that brings people together. The beauty of this nation is our diversity. We are many different people. We walk to the sound of different drummers. Um, and what a president does is chart a course that's acceptable for everybody and in so doing brings people together. And this is not happening. So I do worry about the country because we are very diverse. We have many different people, many races, creeds, colors, backgrounds. What makes America great? But it also makes it vulnerable. We've, uh, we had uh, Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom on a few weeks ago, and we asked him this question. And I want to ask you as well, you know, everybody in public life uh, has sort of an image. Uh, and sometimes the image is accurate, and sometimes it doesn't quite square with the reality or the way they think of themselves. And for you, you know, I think people see you as sort of, a, just to use a shorthand, Pacific Heights, wealthy, uh, somebody who's sort of above everything, uh, somebody who has had a, you know, easy upbringing, all those things. When you think of that image of you, and when you hear people talk about you uh, as that kind of person, like, what, what's missing from that characterization? Well, you see, I've never heard that. Really? And I didn't have an easy upbringing for reasons I'm not going to go into here, but it was not easy. And yes, I happened to marry um, a man who uh, is, is financially uh, astute, let me say, and uh, but I never had a lot of money, and I worked all my life, and I think that was good for me. So I don't consider myself a Pacific Heights matron, whatever that is. I mean, I was at work every day at some job, and so people, I think, rush to mischaracterize and I would say you have to take into consideration uh, my real history, which is my everyday history of what I do with my life and how I try to help and uh, what I do with people and the kind of bills we put forward and the, time, the successes when we have them and the failures when we have them. I mean, one thing that struck me looking at your biography is that you were a single mother in, what, the late 1950s, early 1960s, before marrying your second husband. Um, and, 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 the, and then later... Well, I was married. Right, uh, but I mean, you became yeah, a single mother when I you became, divorced. That's correct. Which could not have been easy no, at that time. No, and, and you ever. eloped, right? You eloped. You got married young. <laughs> you did that well. eye roll. <laughs> <laughs> That tells you something. <laughs> well, but I want to kind of fast forward when you decided to run for Senate in 1992. Um, and this was the time of the Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill hearings. I've heard you speak about seeing her testify and and how that impacted you. Um, I mean, can you talk about that and how maybe being a single mother earlier and, and being a trailblazer, as we've discussed, 
impacted that decision to run in what became the year of the woman, but you probably didn't know that when you start when you decided to file your papers. No, I didn't. Um, I had been serving on the California Women's Board of Terms and Parole, and that um, I, I did it for six years. I sat on some five thousand cases of women convicted of felonies in state prison and set sentences. We ran a parole division at that time. I was 28 years old. And then, obviously, I went on to uh, two other things. Um, But um, what is the question you want answered about me? I mean, why why in that moment did you decide to run for Senate? Um, and, And what did you sort of bring with you having, being a woman at that time, um, and, and being part of this huge class of women running, but you know, not knowing how the, it was going to turn out. And you had just run for governor. Also. Yes. Well, that's the, I think that's the point. I had run for governor. Uh, I missed it by 2.5%. Um, but uh, I had a big constituency. So there was a lot of encouragement to not throw it all away, but to use it. And we did uh, run, for gov- uh, run for Senate. And I was very pleased to represent this state. And Did it surprise you that two Jewish women from the Bay Area, you and Barbara Boxer, both got elected? Not really. Really? Not really. You, you know, it's like, would you say, would you be surprised if two Catholics from the Bay Area got elected? <laughs> A little. I don't think so. <laughs> no. I mean, it just, it happens. Um, I think we do want to talk about your time in the Senate a little bit. You know, you um, sit on the Judiciary Committee. Uh, you have been very um, involved in the Senate Intelligence Committee. And I want to ask you about your relationship with the intelligence community, because it seems like it has changed over time. Um, you told Mother Jones a few years ago that your decision to vote for the second Iraq war was the decision I most regret and that it was based right. on believing the Still CIA. True. Yeah. Did that, I don't know, shake your... Um, belief in some of these institutions that you had really been close to for a long time? Oh, it, it made me very circumspect, which is helpful. <laughs> and um, I subsequently became chairman of the committee for a period of time. And as a matter of fact, we did a 32,000-page report yes. on torture and CIA's use of torture. Which you released over and, the objections well, of a... President. We, no, we no? didn't never release the full report. Yeah. We were able to re- release a 500-page summary, which has been sold in bookstores, as a matter of fact. And I, President Obama put it in his special library. So in 12 years from the time he put it in, it will then be declassified, mm. the whole big report. But it pretty much documents what happened. And uh, everything is which has 7,000 footnotes to it, and no one has corrected anything in the summary. Well, P- CIA has corrected a few things, which we've corrected, and where we didn't accept the correction, we run in the footnotes what they say. I wonder if uh, you, know, you have, over the course of your time in the Senate, uh, developed a uh, reputation, and you've cultivated a bipartisan sort of collegial relationship with people on the other side of the aisle. Many times you've co-sponsored legislation. And that sort of trait has kind of been criticized by your opponent in this race, Kevin DeLeon. Well, by my opponent, but that's, that, that's, that's his view, and uh, that, that's what it is. It's not the way the Senate works. 
and the the, the Senate works the way it has worked for a couple of hundred years well, now. But I so <laughs> it's difficult, and I find that if I can talk to people and work with people, it makes it much easier to get something done. For example, it took me three years and 28 drafts to draft the water bill, which is called the WIN Act. And I then went over and I negotiated it with the Speaker of the House, who is a Republican. And that's how we got it done. And then it went into an omnibus and it was passed. Never would have got it done otherwise. Now I have to begin uh, and to draft another bill. But I guess there are some people yeah. who say, well, you know what, that era is over. You know, we can't. Uh, what era is over? The well, era getting of, things done? Well, yeah, maybe. I mean, oh, I if, if you so. look at, for example, the Senate Judiciary Committee, I mean, you've tried to work very carefully with Chuck Grassley, who chairs the committee, and there are all these things are happening over objections of Democrats. I mean, where, where's the compromise, say, uh, on that committee? Well, it all depends upon what it is. Um, yes, I work with the chairman, believe it or not, um, over a very difficult nominee, Kavanaugh. I think we had um, some moments, but that happens to everybody uh, in any kind of work or job. You have your moments and you put it together. I'm the lead Democrat. Right now, I'm trying to draft a big immigration bill. It's been five, seven years since we had the last bill. We worked on it and worked on it and had hearings on it, and it came out on the floor. We passed it, and the House didn't take it up. So there's a big learning lesson in that for me, and I want to see if I can do it. Can I write a bill, which I can also get through the House? And can that bill, and, and one of the things is that, you know, the president said that he was going to have a policy of separating children from parents at the border. He did have a policy. And we want to make that illegal by law. We want to protect small children. And the DACA student, there's 700,000 of them, and getting their parents a work permit and getting them uh, legitimized in this country. Um, so there are a lot of things we can do uh, as part of a, an immigration bill. But it seems, I mean, but we have been stuck without an immigration compromise for years. Just a few weeks ago, we saw Democrats leave town. Um, there was an agreement to confirm 15 judges, fast track them under the you know agreement that there wouldn't be any more justices pushed through the committee until after the election. And you guys left town and the Republicans did it anyway. I mean, well, I had the debate scheduled, so it was... Uh, <laughs> Right. But isn't that I mean, doesn't that speak to the breaking down of the bipartisanship that you're talking well, about? I'll be very frank with you. This surprised me that he would do that. However, if I think about it, this president is engaged in a conscious stacking of the court, federal court system of the United States of America. And so they are just pushing judges through. Now, what, so, what happened was the hearing. It wasn't the vote. And we all, nonetheless, do our work. We study the individual. We, we look at, at that individual's record. We know whether we can or cannot vote for them. And so we will be there for the vote. This was a surprise. I have never seen that done before. There are some in your party, and I, th I think you could say the junior senator from California might be among them, 
you know, who feel like they have to take a harder line. I mean, Kamala Harris on the Judiciary Committee came out against Brett Kavanaugh from the get-go, I think, before she even met with him or certainly before there was a hearing. Do you think that's a mistake? No. It's her. If she wants to do that, she's free to do it. I've always had a policy that until we get through the hearing, I never announce a decision. Otherwise, why hold the hearing? <laughs> and that's my view of it. You know, Kamala, Kamala's going to be very good. There's no question about that. And it's, it's wonderful for me because I can be a friend. Um, but we are also different in how we look at things. Everyone is. And we probably write differently. Um, I wonder you, if, you know, um, if you feel like uh, that style is uh, not conducive to really building the kind of bridges. That's nonsense. The Senate takes all kinds of styles. I don't know what this style business suddenly is here. No, I get things done. I get bills passed. And so with, you believe the Senate so, can work? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I do different things. I'm on different committees. We do share one committee. We share judiciary. And... Um, I can learn from her. She's the newcomer. What have you learned from her? What have you learned from her? Oh, what I learned. I mean, she's very smart. Um, She's been a prosecutor. You see that in her questioning. And it's very interesting. It's not Uh, your style. No, (laughs) it's not a question of style. It really isn't. I get the feeling you're trying to push me into some mode that I'm really not in. I want to ask you one question, because you mentioned being the first woman on the judiciary, and we opened this by asking you about the trailblazing you've done. And I'm curious, you know, when we had um, Minority Leader Pelosi in her, she talked about the responsibility she feels to be a woman at the table, to, to, be, to be there, really. Um, and I just want, I wonder if you feel that, if that is part of the reason you still want to do this job for another six years. No, it's not just because I'm a woman. It's because I think I do it well, and I've got a great staff, and I work them very hard, and we have a letter, a a level of excellence, and I think that's important, to get a bill as good as I can get it, to work with people, to bring in other people's views, to solve problems, to be able to pick up the phone and someone will take the call and hopefully say yes. Yes. That's really what this is about. It's about getting things done for people. All right. Senator Feinstein, thank you so much oh, for your time. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks thank for you, coming Scott. In. Thank you, Marissa. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night. 
knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.